Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Judges chapter 19. Judges chapter 19. Appreciate those who reached out this week and even this morning. Uh, let me know that you have and are praying for me. Um, I ask that you, you keep praying uh, that God would speak through, through me. It's amazing. Look around, and I see all the pastors are here. And yet here I am <laughs> preaching this, this text. God... God be God. God be God. He knew. Uh, he knew before the foundation of the world that I needed this text for my own heart. Um, for my own heart. To see my sin, but to also see the beauty of Jesus, our Savior. As I told some of our people on the, the app, uh, the rawness of the text um, been led by God, I believe, to, to tell the story, not to get bogged down into the weeds and gore, but to, to tell it uh, as the scripture unfolds. So I plan to do that. A famous author once said, just when you think it can't get any worse, it can and just when you think it can't get any better, it can. You would think that it can't get much lower than stealing from your own mama. Last week, Judges 17. One of the worst things a human can do is take from the one who gave them life. Surely it can't get much worse than that. Well, just when you think it can't get any worse, it can. And as we conclude our sermon series in the book of Judges, we see what many would call the lowest or the worst recorded portions of Israel's history. We see the effects of sin at an all-time low. We see, as the sermon title suggests, the corruption of society and the people therein. If you're a title person, sermon uh, title for today is The Corruption of Society, and I hope we see the depravity or the corruption of society and the division of Israel and the deception of Israel. Three Ds, the depravity, the division, and the deception. We'll begin by reading a portion of the text, and then we'll, we'll read throughout. Lord, help us as we read your word. The text, beginning... Chapter 19, verse 1, reading on the ESV. In those days when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took him to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. And was there for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. And he had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with, them, with him excuse me, three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart the morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Please be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. Verse 7. When the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day he rose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart, and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. 
but the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners, who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. He said to his, this, his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. Verse 14, So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Let's pray. Father, we ask again in the sweet, mighty name of Jesus that you would help us, that you would help me to preach boldly your word through the power of your spirit in me, that you would help your people listen, hear the power of the spirit in them. Jesus, we ask that you would Get much glory in this place. Oh, now is your time to shine in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the darkness. Get much glory in this place. In your name, Jesus, amen. A little background. Many commentators suggest, and I agree, that the events of Judges 19 through 21 had actually taken place earlier than how they're recorded in the book. For Judges 20, 28 tells us that Phineas... The grandson of Aaron, the same Aaron who was beside Moses and Joshua during the part of the Red Sea, was the high priest. This suggests that not hundreds of years have gone by before these events recorded here had elapsed. And so the tone of this count is not so much chronological, it's not so much for historical purpose, but for literary purposes to show us just how far the Israelites had gone and doing things their own way. Chapter 19 starts out with a common refrain, in those days when there was no king in Israel. The same refrain used in chapter 18 last week, verse 1. It's the same refrain used in chapter 17, verse 6. And it's the same refrain used to end the book. And our sermon text today, Judges 21-25. By stating this refrain, the narrator is calling us to recall previously what happens when Israel is without a king and to anticipate the same, if not worse, actions by this people. In Judges 19-21, we see first the depravity or corruption of society the depravity or corruption of society. Depravity is the idea that left to ourselves, we're all mo morally bankrupt. As said in Grow this morning, we're spiritually dead. Left to ourselves, you and I will show the moral failures of our hearts that began as a result of the fall and have extended in our own hearts, in our families, in our churches, and in society itself. And as we come to the end of our series in Judges, we see the downward spiral of Israel on full display. You know, your typical downward spiral, there, it goes down and there's a, there's a smaller point, right? It's a fixed point. This downward spiral, it actually gets a wide, casts a wider net. The sin of Israel, the corruption of Israel has a greater impact on more and more people. In our text this morning, we're introduced to a Levite, a nameless Levite. The text calls him a certain Levite. Perhaps to remind us, to remind you and I that, that left to ourselves, we could be that man. 
we could be this certain Levite. And we're told this Levite was sojourning throughout the remote parts of Ephraim, and he took a concubine for himself. He takes a concubine from Bethlehem. A concubine in those days was a, it's like a second-class wife, if you will. It had all the responsibilities of a wife, but few the privileges. She was his concubine. This already goes against God's word. For God teaches a man shall leave his wife, his father and mother, and cling to his wife, his one wife. Not a wife and a concubine, or two or three. You see, concubines were a cultural thing. They weren't the biblical thing. And the narrator tells us that in verse 2, that, this, that his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah. Now the Septuagint and other English translations translate it that the woman became angry with him. And that her unfaithfulness to him was that she abandoned her husband and never went back to him. Now, whether her unfaithfulness was a result of her cheating on him or her abandonment is not the point. The point is she's gone to her father's house and there for four months. For four months. Not a call, not a text, an email or nothing. And for some reason... The text tells us that the Levite decides to go get her back. He goes to his father's house, father-in-law's house, to speak kindly with his concubine and win her back to himself, which might suggest that he was in the wrong to begin with. But maybe she was in the wrong. And he, full of grace, wanted to win his bride back. The text doesn't tell us. We're not exactly clear. But we do know that his father-in-law greets him with joy and hospitality. The father-in-law is extremely hospitable. He wants the Levite to continuously stay with him. But after his three days, it's extended to the fifth day, the Levite sides. Appreciate your father-in-law, but it's, it's, it's time to go. Even though the day is drawing to a close, Nighttime will be here soon. The Levite decides to leave. He takes his saddles, his donkey, servant, and concubine, and he's headed north from Bethlehem to Jebus, current the home of the Jebusites, the same people they're supposed to kick out of the land, which God had told them not to do, and they did it. It is Jebus, is today's Jerusalem. And so he heads back. The Levites, as they're going to Jebus, the Levite's servant, recommends they spend the night. He says in verse 12, And his master said to him, We will not turn aside, or excuse me, verse 11, When they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of Jebusites and spend the night in it. The servant recommends they spend the night in Jebus. But the Levite says, this is where foreigners live. We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. You see, Jebus was a town of foreigners. The same foreigners they were supposed to remove. And the Levite didn't want to stay with those people. They weren't Israelites. He wanted to be with his people and spend the night with them. Ironically, he wants to spend the night with the same people who were supposed to make sure he had a place to stay to begin with. For the Israelites were to take care of the Levites and make sure they had a home, as Pastor Jordan mentioned last week. So the same people who were supposed to already provide for him, he wants to stay with them as if somehow things will change this time. And so they move on from Jebus to Gibeah. And the Bible tells us it's near Gibeah where the sun goes down. And now it's nighttime. And the Levite goes to the open square for no one to take him into his house. His own people. 
His own people show zero hospitality. Now back then it was the custom in the ancient Middle East to show hospitality visitors, especially for Israel. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 33 and 34. When a stranger or foreigner sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God's word clearly tells the Israelites how they are to treat the visitor. And yet here the Levite is in the open square for all to see. No excuses. And no one, no one, no one takes him in. They didn't show hospitality to their own people. And it's nighttime and they left him in the street. If you think it can't get worse, it can. But perhaps we can ask the question, why? Why do the men of Gibeah, why do those in Gibeah not take the Levite in? The narrator doesn't explicitly state it. But perhaps we can infer that the people of Gibeah know their own people. They know who lives in the city. And they know their own customs. They know that if they take this Levite, his concubine and servant in, they know who, as we'll read shortly, who's going to come knocking at the door. They know that their custom is to honor and protect their visitors and to protect those who stay at their house, even, even at their own expense. You see, the people in Gibeah would rather not show hospitality at all than show hospitality and suffer the consequences. They would not, rather not show hospitality at all than show hospitality and suffer the consequences. Their corrupt conscience would allow them to break one law so that they didn't have to break another. And as we keep reading, we'll see the corruption of Gibeah play out as someone does indeed take them in. Keep reading with me in verse 16. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going? Where do you come from? And he, the Levite, said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. And I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys, with bread and wine for me and your female servant, and the young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. You just got to take us in. We got all we need. Verse 20. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed. And they washed their feet and ate and drank. And as they were making their hearts merry, behold. Behold. It was actually an old man who wasn't from Gibeah, but ironically from the hill country of Ephraim, which is where the Levite was sojourning, who took the Levite in. And he says, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brings him in, washes his feet, gives him food. They're having a great time. Here's a man showing hospitality, loving his neighbor, as it were. Their hearts are merry. There's joy in the house. And in the same sentence, Verse 22, we see the depravity, the, the corruption 
of man. And I think the author does that intentionally. Read again. As they were, verse 22, as they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless men, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. The author does this, I think, intentionally to show his readers that when left to ourselves, when man is left to himself, we can see the happiest of times. Just like that. The worst of times. The best of man and yet the worst of man. Here you see a man looking after another. And just like that, man is seeking assault on another man. A man... As the text goes on, offers up his own child. Oh, the depravity. Oh, the corruption. Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. They want to assault this man. I trust you can fill in the blanks. I'm doing my best. They want to commit the sin of homosexuality, amongst other things. And we can go on. Oh, the depravity of man. And the old man, the master of the house, who's, he can't possibly give the men what they want. Because that would bring him dishonor. He must protect the Levite. So the old man wants to satisfy them in some way. Presumably, so they leave, and so he offers them his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Oh, how low. How corrupt the heart of man in society in Israel has gotten that, that we have a group of men asking for another. And the offer by this old man, the downward spiral, has cast a large net over the Levite and his concubine and has reached the city of Gibeah and the old man who works there. It's chaos. And things are so twisted, you really don't know what's going to happen next, which is the definition of chaos. In response to the old man's offer, the men, they refuse. They refuse to listen. They came for one purpose. The man... But taking matters into his own hands, the Levite himself takes his concubine and forces her to go out to the men. Essentially pushes her out the door. And we're told they used and abused her all night and let her go in the morning. When they let her go, she's alive. The text, it tells us that wherever they had her, they let her go back. She finds her way back to the old man's house. Old man's house. But by the time the Levite goes out to see her, she's, she's not moving. And it appears the callous, self-preserving Levite presumes she's dead. Because after she doesn't respond to his call, verse 28, he says, he said to her, get up, let us be going. Get up, let us be going. But there is no answer. So after there's no answer, he takes her back to his house. He mutilates her. 12 pieces, distributes her remains throughout all of Israel. And just when you think it can't get worse, it can. Who does this? Who does what the men of Gibeah did? Who does what the old man did? And the Levite. Well, the Sodomites, 
The way in which the narrator tells the story ought to hearken the Israelite reader back to Genesis 19. In Genesis 19, you can go back and read on your own, but it's the same story. Lot shows hospitality to two angels. He invites them in. They have a meal. Their hearts are merry. They're having a good time. And then the men of Sodom come. And they ask Lot, where are the two men you, who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Instead of the two men, Lot offers his two virgin daughters, just like the Levite here offers up his virgin daughter and the Levite's concubine. Now, in Genesis 19, the angels and the two girls were spared. For some reason or another, Levite's concubine was not spared. But the main point for the readers then and for us now is that the men of Gibeah, the Benjamites, the Israelites, the people of God, God's own people, become like those of Sodom. Israel, Israel who was to be God's holy, set-apart people were no, acting no different than the same people whose sin was so egregious to the nostrils of God that he wiped them out. In fact, you, you couldn't really tell the difference. When God's people, when we do in and of ourselves what we think is right, we will look, think, speak, act no better than the worst of sinners. Oh, the depravity of society. And so perhaps, church, think of ourselves. Does the world outside these walls, do they see us? Do they see that we're different? Or are we ourselves no better and look no different than those outside of these walls? May God help us. But not only do we see the depravity of society, of Gibeah, its corruption, but we also see the vision of a nation. The corruption of Gibeah leads to the vision of Israel. It becomes a nation divided because sin divides people. And when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes and looking out for themselves as opposed to doing what God calls them to do, the things that shouldn't be a problem become a problem, a big problem, and chaos ensues. Chapter 19 ends with the Levites sending the remains of the concubine throughout Israel. Several commentators suggest this is a declaration of war. The Levite is calling the Israelites to fight Gibeah. King Saul would do something similar in 1 Samuel chapter 11 when he cuts an oxen to pieces, declaring the Israelites to come together to defeat the Ammonites. But back in Judges, it does appear to be a declaration of war because upon seeing what had happened to the woman, the nation of Israel unites as one. Read with me chapter 20, beginning in verse 1. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. And the people of Israel said, tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, and then he begins to tell his side of the story. While everyone in Israel did what is right in their own eyes, it was clear to all of Israel that what had happened to the Levite's concubine was wrong. And it was. And so they came together as one, not divided, but as one, to hear from the Levite what had happened. Notice, as we go through the self-preservation of the Levite, Here's a man, he's only looking out for himself. And telling his 
side of the story. He says in verse 4, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, and I and my concubine to spend the night. Notice what he leaves out. He doesn't tell him why he came. He had to go back to get his bride because she left him. He only tells part of the story. Verse 5, And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me. They violated my concubine. Notice, he doesn't tell them that he's the one who put her out. He's only trying to look out for himself. He uses false motives. They meant to kill me. They didn't mean to kill him. They mean to assault him. And I trust you understand what we mean there. And so he twists the motives of the Gibeah, of men of Gibeah to entice the Israelites to get the justice that he deserves. And the Israelites, they believe him. But how could you believe him as the reader? I wouldn't trust anything that comes out of the mouth of a man who would send his concubine, send his wife out in such a way. This is free. For a man or woman can give up a loved one like this man. You better believe that they will lie. They'll manipulate, they'll become a wordsmith and play you like a fool. As we heard through the pastoral epistles, you ought to avoid such a one. See, this man is all about getting his justice, his vengeance. He's not about getting true justice. He's what we call self-righteous. He's about saving himself, propelling himself up at the expense of others. And the Israelites, they eat up every word. Listen to them in verse 8. And all the people rose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and a thousand of ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may be, repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. And the tribes of Israel sent, them, sent men through all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, What evil is this that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the, but the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel, then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities of Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. 16. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hair and, at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men, who drew the sword. All of these were men of war. So here we have a civil war breaks out. And the people of Israel are committed to seeking justice for the Levite and his concubine. They go and they ask the Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, what evil is this that has taken place among you? Now the Israelites, they assume that the Benjamites know what they're talking about. They don't ask them questions in detail, they just go to them directly, and they request the Benjamites to hand over the worthless men of Gibeah, so they may be put to death. That is, in fact, what these men deserve for their actions. However, because of the corruption of both Israel and Benjamin, chaos, civil war ensues. 
Now, why is that the case? In part because Israel took the Levites' word for it. They didn't further question the Levite. They didn't ask for the men of Gibeah to ascertain what really happened. They go against God's word. Deuteronomy 17 says you need two or three witnesses to confirm such a fact before you put any man to death. This is a note to all of us, parents, Grace Church elders, if you're a leader of an organization, don't take the word of one, don't take one person's word for something. Investigate it. See to it that you gain all the facts before you make a conclusion. Israel not doing this leads to further division among them and Benjamin. As the people of Benjamin, as one commentator put it, they're so focused on their blood than their covenant to God. They would rather protect their brother then look at all the facts and hold them accountable. Choosing family over justice is one of the more corrupt aspects of our society today. Time and time again, we see families covering up for one another, giving false alibis, paying thousands and thousands of dollars for lawyers to see a guilty person go free because blood is thicker than water. And it's that kind of corruption in our text that leads to division in Israel. It's the corruption in Gibeah that leads to a civil war where you have 4,000 men of Israel versus 26,700 from Benjamin. There are three battles. The first two battles, Israel outnumbers Benjamin. They lose them both. I believe this is part of God's judgment for Israel themselves, had still had sin. They did not get the log out of their own eyes. But then there's the third battle. For time's sake, we'll, I'll just give you the, the big picture. In the third battle, before going out to battle, the Israelites, they go to God again. This time they fast and they weep and they pray and they offer sacrifices, I believe, as a sign of repentance to God. And then God hears their cry and tells them, I will deliver. Benjamites into your hands. And that's exactly what happens. And the Israelites, they wipe out almost all of the Gibeonites leaving only 600, excuse me, Benjamites, leaving only 600 who would get away and escape. And that takes us to chapter 21. In which we see the deception of Israel's passion in compassion. The Israelites were zealously angry with the abominable actions of the men of Gibeah, and justifiably so. They were just as upset with their brothers of Benjamin for not listening to them, but siding with evil over justice. And so out of hot passion and anger, they made two vows before going to battle. They promised, one, to not give any of their daughters to the Benjamites, and two, that, that any tribe who had not gone with them to fight against Benjamin shall be put to death. And it seems as if these vows make sense. After all, why would you give one of your daughters to such vile men, to such men who would protect a brother who would commit such an act? And if a tribe is not with you, then surely they must be against you. But their passion deceived them into making overzealous vows. They were based off emotions in the heat of the moment. They didn't really think through the possible ramifications for their actions. See, their passion deceived them into thinking that they were doing the right thing. 
They thought they were doing the right thing because they were thinking through things through their own eyes, not through God or his words. And so when in their compassion, after they see their brothers, the Benjamites, almost wiped out, the whole city, cities of Benjamin, wiped out, no woman for the Benjamite, the 600 Benjamites to marry. They have this compassion on them. But they remember their oath. They can't give any of their women to the Benjamites. But they also remember their second oath. The tribe who didn't come to battle would be put to death. The leaders of Israel remember that no one from Jabesh Gilead had to come to fight. You guys didn't come to fight for us to defeat Benjamin, so now we're going to put you to death. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. And so they plan to ambush their brothers from Jabesh Gilead, wiping them all out except the young virgins and those ladies. These virgins, some 400 virgins, will be given over to the Benjamites. So we're going to wipe out one tribe to preserve another. Every man does what is right in his own eyes. Utter corruption, utter chaos. But when it's all said and done, there's only 400 girls for the Benjamites. So there's still 200 Benjamite brothers who are left without a wife. And you would think that the Israelites would come to the conclusion that they can still repopulate. But that's not enough. Every man needs a wife. And so the story goes on that there's a feast in Shiloh and there's virgins who will come out and dance. And the 200 Benjamites who do not have their wife, they're going to kidnap, essentially, these ladies and take them for themselves because that, that, that makes that makes sense when everyone does what is right in his own eyes. The Israelites' passion and compassion deceived them. They thought they were doing the right thing by preserving the tribe of Israel and doing it in a legal way, breaking no oaths. But what they failed to realize is that in preserving one tribe, they destroyed another and broke several of God's commandments along the way, namely, don't steal. You took another man's daughter. Utter corruption. Utter chaos. The book ends with everyone going back to their own tribal inheritance, and their lives are back to normal again. And then we get to verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the book of Judges. If you would allow me a few words of application and then we'll, we'll pray. I've asked myself a few times, can it get any worse? Can it get any worse than these three chapters that we've really only scratched the surface? And perhaps that's my problem. Perhaps that's our problem. We think surely there's level to our sin and some of our sins, we think, are more justifiable than others. I can do this because of this. And y'all, that's, that's thinking what is right in our own eyes. Was the concubine more wrong for her anger or infidelity? For walking away from the marriage were the Israelites more wicked for not showing hospitality to the Levite? Were the men of Gibeah more wicked for their homosexual desire or for their assault on the concubine? Was the Levite more wrong for not standing up for his wife, for offering her up, for looking out for himself, for not telling the whole truth? Was the old man wrong? For offering up his own child. 
and we can go on. I think what the narrator wants to tell us and let us know is that all sin, all of it, all of it, is evil in the eyes of God. And all sin, as Jordan referenced last week, all sin will take you further than you want to go. It leads you down a spiral degradation. And so let's not have our Harvey Horse sins. Oh, this is worse than that. Sins that we elevate as the most heinous only to make light of, to make light of others. Israel came together to fight Benjamin, seeking justice for the concubine, only to let so many other sins of their own go by the wayside and not properly inspect the log in their own eyes. You know, whether it's abortion or homosexuality, sex trafficking, murder, lying, cheating, stealing, coveting. I asked some of my middle schoolers this week, what's the biggest sins you struggle with? And they said pride and gossip. Regardless of the sin, may we consider it as wrong in the eyes of God and even our own. And may we not, like Israel, look for loopholes to justify our own sin. It's wrong. May we give our sin, our sin, our sin, its proper weight. Oh, and may we look to Jesus to help us in overcoming our sin. And may we not look to others, namely political leaders, to fix the corruption of our society. I'm thankful for Mayor Young, uh, and I pray for Mayor Young, but he can't fix Memphis. Early November, going to the polls. The next leader of our country, they can't fix the corruption of our society. Oh, church, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. Our city needs Jesus. And so this is where I'll close. The book of Judges ends by saying, in those days, there was no king. The author was most likely, the author most likely wrote the book of Judges during the time of David. And so as he looks back at the events in Judges, he says, in those days, there was no king. Oh, but I can smile and look at Pastor Rick because a king was coming. And it wasn't Saul of Gibeah. But a good and righteous king, King David, was coming to rule in Israel. And from King David would come a greater king. A king who would come to rule in righteousness and peace. A king of whom his father would say, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. A king who would not live by bread alone, but by every word. From the mouth of God, a king who would come to not do what is right in his eyes, but come to do the will of him who sent him. A king who could read the hearts of men and discern the innocent from the guilty. A king who would call his people to repent and not just let them do whatever they want. Oh, this king, his name is Jesus. And as the late pastor C.M. Lockridge once says, oh, That's my king. Do you know him? Do you know him, Grace Church? Do you know this Jesus? Visitors, do you know him? The one, Jesus, who can set you free? From all the corruption of our hearts. As we see the corruption of Gibeah and the results that followed, 
It should give us a greater understanding of the depravity of man left to himself and the depravity and darkness of our own hearts when we, when we stray from God and from his word. And these events ought to cause us, as someone prayed earlier, to run, to run to Jesus. We must run to the light of Christ, King Jesus, who paid our sin debt and rose victoriously to fully, fully, not once a cycle, but fully deliver us from our greatest enemy. Not the worthless men of these outside walls, but our greatest enemy, this wall. The wall of our hearts. And Christ died to set you free. Run to him. Run to the king. His name is Jesus. Oh, you want chaos? There it is. But I'm here to offer you Christ. Would you come? Father, I do pray that you would do what I can't do. I can't talk eloquently enough to save a sinner. But your spirit, just like you saved me, oh, you could save someone today. Well, we live in a world, our even own city, chaos, chaos, chaos. Would you give us the king, the anointed Messiah, the Christ, Jesus? And would you do that good work that we talked about in Grow? Would you, would you make that call effectual? in the lives of those underneath the sound of my voice? And would you draw every last one? I'm greedy, Lord. I'm praying every last one I'm in here to Jesus, the King.